All right, I hope you still have your Bible open to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16. A musician named Waylon Jennings. Waylon Jennings, maybe you heard the name. I think he sings country music. He was scheduled to be on a flight that Buddy Holly was on February 3rd, 1959. You've probably heard of that flight. It's a famous one. It didn't get to its destination. It crashed, uh, made famous by the song The Day the Music Died. So Waylon Jennings was supposed to be on that flight, but one of the other musicians wasn't feeling well, who was supposed to take a bus to the next destination, and Waylon said, you know what, you're not feeling well, you can take my spot on the airplane, I'll ride the bus. Buddy Holly didn't like that, and he came up to Waylon, and he was irritated that this other musician was going to be on the flight instead of Waylon, and Buddy Holly said to Waylon Jennings, I hope your old bus freezes. And Waylon Jennings said to Buddy Holly his last words to his friend Buddy, I hope your old plane crashes. And he re- expressed regret in the years since. It, those were his last words, and as well as regret that he was supposed to be on the plane and he wasn't. He asked the question that many people who survive very traumatic experiences survive. They say, why did I live and others didn't? Doctors have a phrase for that. It's called survivor's guilt. If people grapple with this idea, well, I thought I was supposed to be dead and now I'm alive, does my life mean what it's supposed to mean now that I'm still alive? And as Christians, we ought to ask this question too, as those who have survived death and sin through the work of Christ, we say, now that I have survived, what does my life mean? And last week in the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about what kingdom culture is in the Beatitudes. And this week in verses 13 through 16 in Matthew 5, we're going to talk about kingdom life. Now having survived, those who have received Christ, having survived sin and death, what is kingdom life supposed to look like? Another illustration, if you don't mind. You might think of your salvation as having rescued you from a deserted island. You're on a deserted island, and Jesus shows up and says, I'm going to save you from this island of sin and death and rescue you. Now, if that's your perspective, then the Meaning of your salvation is merely getting off the island, right? But that's not the purpose of our salvation, to merely be rescued. The purpose of our salvation is to redeem our life, not to just get off the island, but to go somewhere and live in a particular way, having been saved. And so we're going to look at these verses with that in mind. What does it mean to have a kingdom life from Jesus' perspective? What does it mean to not merely be rescued but to be redeemed. Verse 13, Pat read it twice. I'm going to read it a third time. You are the salt of the earth. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Kingdom life, verse 13, more Jesus, less world. More Jesus, less world. In the first century, the primary way that they got salt was salt marshes. Nowadays, we get most of our table salt from salt mines. Back then, it was mostly salt marshes. If you have a sharp eye when you're landing at San Francisco Airport, you'll see some salt marshes along the bay. The most famous salt marshes today are over in France, and gourmet salt is extracted from the salt marshes there. If you're paying extra money for salt from France, keep this in mind. It's exactly the same as all other kinds of salt. It's a different shape. No, serious. Anyway. Have at it. Knock yourself out. Salt marshes. So what would happen is they would, the water would evaporate and they would scoop up the salt. 
Now, if you know anything about saltiness in science, which you're about to, salt can't lose its saltiness. It's a stable mineral. Salt is always salty. It can't not be salty. The only way to, for salt to not be salty is for there to be so much impurities in the salt, you can no longer detect the salt itself. So when he's talking about salt losing its saltiness, he's talking about diluted salt. And what they would do is they would use their salt to preserve their food. You would butcher a cow and you would eat it, and you couldn't eat all of it. You could try, but you couldn't quite get through it all. And you'd want to keep the next piece of meat for tomorrow, but you don't have a refrigerator. So you salt it real good, and that's going to preserve it, and you might be able to keep it for a couple extra days. How do you know if that salt is going to keep that meat from rotting? You taste it. If it tastes salty, it's got plenty of salt in it, and you can put it on the meat and preserve it. If it doesn't taste salty, what do you do with it? You throw it out into the roadway. The rain would use that as a form of pavement. That's what people would do. Throw it out onto the roadway, and over time, that would keep the road smooth. And what he's saying is if salt no longer flavors, if salt no longer preserves, at that point, it doesn't offer any use whatsoever. And Jesus is saying to us as believers, you are salt of the earth. There is something that ought to be distinctive about you that offers a flavoring and a preservation effect in the world around us, and that distinctiveness is Jesus. And so he would say to us, more Jesus, less world. The more world we are that characterizes our life, what's the flavor of Christ going to be? Diluted. It's going to lose its flavor. And you would say, well, that seems kind of harsh. Well, if you're saying that, you've never read the Sermon on the Mount. This is the easy stuff. Later on, he's talking about cutting your arms off. So think about it this way if you think it's harsh. You go to the pool. It's summertime. You go to Jackson Pool. It's where my kids like to swim. There's a lifeguard there. And you see a person in the deep end sort of struggling a bit. So you go over to the lifeguard and you say, I don't know if you noticed, um, that guy doesn't seem like he's doing very well. And the lifeguard goes, oh, I don't know how to swim. <laughs> well, can you hang out the hooky thingy? Well, I've done, well, I wasn't trained in that. You say, well, okay, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go get the guy, drag him to the shore, and then you can do whatever you do to make sure he's still breathing. He says, oh, I, I never took first aid. So what do you say to him? You're not a lifeguard. You've got a red swimsuit, you're sitting on a chair, you've got nose block on your, or sunblock on your nose, and you have a floaty thing slung over your shoulder, but you are not a lifeguard. Because a lifeguard is distinctive in that they would know what to do in those situations. And what Jesus is saying to us in the most uncompromising ways is your usefulness in the world and your usefulness to the world will be answered by are you distinctively Jesus-y? And that's a word now. Are you distinctively like Christ? Or are we so deluded by the things of this world and the ways of this world that we offer no flavor? One famous quote from a sculptor, I, don't, I think it's legendary more than accurate, but it's worth mentioning. He says, how do you carve an element out of a elephant out of a stone? He says, you simply remove all the parts of that stone that don't look like an elephant. And what Jesus is calling us to do in this world is to see him by his spirit through the power of the gospel, the truth of his word, the intervention of our prayers, the disciple-making of the church to one another to remove everything in our life that isn't Jesus-y. And to be presented in the world as those who are like Christ and we will be distinctively like salt, both offering flavor as well as preservation.
Remove those things from our life that aren't like Christ. He's going to go into great detail, and we're going to cover this in the weeks to come. He's going to talk about anger. What does it mean to walk with Christ and address the issue of anger in our lives? He's going to talk about lust and adultery and fornication. What does it mean as a believer to have proper sexual relations with my spouse and with no one else? What does it look like to have money? As a believer, what does it look like to have money and to be distinctively Christian in that? What does it mean as a person with Christ in my life to deal with injustice in my life and revenge and the desire for revenge and justice in my life? As a Christian, what does it mean in marriage? What does it mean in regard to divorce? He's going to cover all these things. If I'm Christ-like, if I'm jesus or becoming more like Jesus, what does it mean for me to have a relationship with the impoverished? And he's going to make an argument through this that we ought to be distinctively like Christ in these ways if we want to claim his name. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Have you heard of this passage? Let me read it. You may have it memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. How are you saved? By faith. What does God offer us? His grace. What does He give us? Forgiveness and new life in Christ when we trust Him and what He did on the cross and the fact that He was raised from the dead. So it costs us nothing. It cost Him everything. Why did God save us from our sin and death? Look at Ephesians 2.10. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to stare longingly at the eastern horizon waiting for his return. I misread it, just checking to make sure you're still with me. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to ensure that everyone votes according to my personal Christian political agenda. Now it's getting real up in here. created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand for you to do. You're on the desert island. He comes and saves you not to get you off the island. If the only reason for your salvation is to get you off an island, then all of your salvation is merely about you. And I hate to break it to you, your salvation is not about you. Your salvation is about him and what he is saving you to go do. He's saying, hey, I want to save you to go do something. And you're saying, well, I just went off the island. In fact, now that you've saved me, the island's kind of nice. Beach, not a lot of people, could use a restaurant. And he's saying, no, I am saving you, and it's not for you or about you. It's for me and about me for you to do what I am going to call you to do. We are saved to be like Christ both in who we are and in what we do. We are not merely rescued, we are redeemed. That means saved from a world that is centered on us. Redeemed into a world that is centered on Him where every morning we wake up and say, what's up, what do you want me to do today? That's a kingdom life. More Jesus, less world, distinctively His. All right, let's keep going. Salt reminds us that in the kingdom we are distinctive, distinctively like Christ. Light tells us that in kingdom, 
our light being shown to those around us is unavoidable, and that, in fact, our life that we have is available to those around us. So if his uh, figure of speech of salt says to the world around us, we're distinctively like Christ, he now uses a figure of speech about light to tell, he says, I want you to tell the world around them this life is also available to them. Look at verses 14 and 15 of Matthew chapter 5. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Kingdom living, kingdom life, more shining, less hiding. More shining, less hiding. I'm not referring to the movie. Some of you are thinking about it. More shining, less hiding. Two ideas here. Light by nature can't be hidden. Light by its nature is shiny. or shining. Light by its nature illuminates, and he illustrates it's a city up on the hill. You can't hide that city. It's, the light is going to shine in the darkness, and others are going to see it. And not only that, but the idea of trying to hide this light from others, well, that doesn't make any sense. To light a lamp, put it on the table, and take a basket and cover it? You know, why is the, ba- why is the lamp covered, son? Well, I didn't. The light's too bright. Why'd you light the lamp? It doesn't make any sense. He says, in our lives as those following Christ, we are to do more shining of the light of Christ and less hiding of the light of Christ. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says this in regard to himself. Jesus said this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever follows Christ will have the light of life. He also says this down in John chapter 9, verse 1. It is not that, I should say this, let me begin, begin at the beginning. Jesus passed by and saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that he was born blind? That's a really compassionate question. Apart from the course of the disciples, Jesus said, it was not this man who sinned, nor his parents, but that God's works might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, Night is coming when no one will work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is saying, I bring to bear in the darkness the hope that is found in me. I will bring light to those in darkness who who have lost all hope because of their sin and because of their death. And Jesus says, I will bring the light to them. I will bring hope to them. Your sins are forgiven. I will die on the cross and provide forgiveness of sins. I will raise from the dead to overcome death. So he says, I'm, I'm a light. Jesus then goes back to heaven. So now where is the light? Well, what happens is Jesus says, when I go, I will send another to you, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and the, and the Holy Spirit indwells, indwells every single believer. The Apostle Paul refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. So Jesus has not departed the earth. He is now just living in us by the power of the Spirit. J.D. Greer, in one of his books, said it this way, Jesus inside of you is better than Jesus beside you. So when Jesus was here, he said, I am the light of the world. Now that he has gone and sent his Holy Spirit, is the light of the world still here? The answer is yes. Where is it? In you, hidden under a bushel somewhere.
Jesus' light continues to shine because the Holy Spirit indwells his believers that the light of Christ might shine and bring hope to a dark world. What exactly is his light? 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. We proclaim not that which is from ourselves, but Jesus Christ as our Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light we offer as believers to others is the light of Christ himself. We offer a light to this world that Jesus saves sinners. You go up to sinners and you say, you're dying in your sin. They punch you in the face. But every now and then you get someone who says, oh, I know. They don't really punch you in the face. I shouldn't say that. Well, they might. Now I don't know what they do. Jesus offers hope. Jesus offers forgiveness for your sin. Think of it this way. You go to the doctor every single year. Okay, I know that's pretty optimistic. Um, But let's just pretend, guys. I'm talking to the guys in particular about this. Let's just pretend we go to the doctor and get checked up every year. And every year you go to the doctor and he checks you out. He says, man, you're doing fantastic. You're healthy as a horse. Blood looks great. Weight looks great. Blood pressure looks great. Handsome. Well-dressed. Go with God. All right. And do this year after year. Finally, one, one year, you get terribly sick. Ter- I mean, terribly sick. You're so sick, you know you're not going to get better. That kind of sick. So you go into the doctor and say, what's wrong? Oh, man, you're terribly sick. You're not going to get better. He said, but I've known this has been coming. What? Oh, you've been sick for years. Didn't, didn't have the heart to tell you. I'm sorry, what? You didn't have the heart? What do you mean you didn't have the heart to tell me? So I knew it would have been really a, a, upsetting to you, and frankly, I didn't want to offend you. It seemed like you were having such a good life. I mean, wouldn't you be terribly, you would probably sue the guy, wouldn't you? And the world is sick and dying. I said, no, you're fine. Don't worry about it. We know, even though you know they're dying and you know Christ is the cure, but you don't want to offend. You don't want to, you know, I have my opinion, you have your opinions. You know what? Our opinions don't matter on this. Jesus is Lord, and one day he's going to return, and everybody's going to have to account for whether or not they trusted him or not. And now's the time where we have to sit in front of people we know and love and say, I've got to give you bad news. You're dying in your sin. And they're going to call you a self-righteous son of a gun. Don't, be, don't let that bother you. It's probably accurate. But that doesn't prevent you from telling them the truth, does it? If only perfect people can share the gospel, we're toast. That's where you get to own it and say, you're right, I am a self-righteous son of a gun. That's why I need Jesus so bad, and I know you do too. 1 Peter 3.15 says this. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter calls us to always be prepared to tell people why we have hope. So what is he assuming? People will wonder why you have hope. Well, why in the world would they wonder that? He says earlier in the passage in 1 Peter 3, 8, 
have unity of mind, have sympathy, brotherly love, have a tender heart and humbleness. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless those who revile you. So why would somebody ask you if you have hope? Because while living as a Christian, you suffer for it. And people watch you suffering for Christ, and they say, what is wrong with you? And you would say, why wouldn't I suffer for Christ? I have hope in Him. This is what he says in verse 13 as well. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but give an answer for the hope that is in you. We get to give an answer for the hope that is in us when we're walking in the, walking in the holiness of Christ and we suffer for it, and people around us say, I see that your faith cost you something. How can you have hope in what you're going through? And we say, our hope is in Christ alone. Be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in us. We are, in fact, saved to be like Jesus in this place, that we might shine like Jesus in this dark place, with the hope of God and the glory of God. I might suggest as believers every now and then we need to check our lives and decide if our hope is coming from Christ or if it's coming from all the same places the world gets their hope. If the world can look at our lives and say, boy, that is a Christian who has hope because he has everything he's ever worked hard for. Or do they look at our lives and say, he's got hope, she's got hope, but it's coming from someplace different than where I have found hope. And Jesus is saying, let our light shine in such a way that people would see our hope is in God alone. We must shine to those and give good news to the people around us. One story from the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 18. Absalom has died. You might say Absalom had a bad hair day. (laughs) Took you a minute. So Absalom gets hung up in an oak tree. He's not killed. He's just flailing about. Joab comes up. Can't figure out why nobody's killed him yet. And Joab dispatches him along with some friends, I think. At least three javelins were stuck in his heart. That's a lot of javelins in a heart. They then mound a pile of rocks over him. And there are two messengers nearby who are going to, desiring to give report to the king. Ahimaz, Ahimaz, a dog. Uh, the son of Zadak, he said, let me run and carry the good news to the king. What's the good news here? God has had victory over the king's enemies. God has faithfully protected David and his family and all the people who are following him, and the enemies of King David are dead. Joab says to Ahimaaz, no, you shouldn't go. I'm going to send another man, a Cushite, because he knows King David is going to take this as bad news. So the Cushite is sent out to run and deliver the news to David. Ahimaaz is so anxious to deliver the news to David that he runs on after the Cushite. And in fact, he runs so fast he outruns him. He's so anxious, he also takes a shortcut. And the watchmen are watching with David and they see Ahimaaz coming up and they says this, I think I see the running of a messenger and it must be Ahimaaz because he runs pretty good. I don't know why, but he felt like he knew exactly how that guy ran. They must have ran together or something. He's a good man. He must come with good news. 
When he arrived and gave the message to the king, the king says, what happened? King, good news. Uh, God has delivered you from your enemies. And the king asks him, what of my son Absalom? And Ahimaaz says, oh, yeah, boy, there's a lot of commotion. Um, but I couldn't tell you. Hard to know if he knew or not. I think he lied. I think he knew exactly what was going on. The Cushite arrives. The high man says, hey, all yours. Knock it out. David says, what news of Absalom? And the Cushite tells him, good news and truthful news. May all of your enemies be like that man. May all of your enemies be dead. Is that good news? Yes, because Absalom was the one who was sinning against God and his people and the king of God. And God had dispatched him, and David mourned. He didn't want to give up Absalom. Why do I tell you this story? Here's the reason I tell you this story. So many of us want to be saved, but we want to keep Absalom. We want to keep whatever that thing is that is not God's. It's not like God. It's not even close to Jesus. It's not Jesus-y in any regard. And we say, God, you can save me. I'm all of yours, but I want this bit. It's a habit I've always had, or I'm never going to kick this habit. I don't know what it is for you. But you say, you know what? I don't want to let this go. And God is saying, I am saving you on purpose, not just merely to rescue you from an island, but to abandon that which is evil and to do that which is good. We could say it even more strongly to say, I don't want your good news if it means leaving this behind. We haven't really heard the good news. The good news is Christ is better than Absalom. Sin is dead. We now get to serve others. We no longer have to serve our own desires and flesh and pleasures. We now get to take all of that energy and serve others. Kingdom life, more shining, less hiding, mourn not the sins of our past. Matthew 5.16, let's conclude with this verse. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Waylon Jennings asked the question according to an interview, why did I live? And as Christians, we ought to, if we're going to read this passage honestly, answer this question as Christians and say, why did he save me? Why am I saved? Let your light shine before others that they might see your good works. Kingdom life is this, finally, more serving others, less serving self. More serving others and less serving self. You have to understand this. You realize that the opposite of sinfulness is not religion. The opposite of sinfulness is not institutional churchianity. The opposite of sinfulness is not liturgical holiness. Take 10 steps down the aisle, wave holy water, I don't know, whatever you're into. The opposite of sinfulness is not religion. The opposite of sinfulness is Christ-like service to others. The Bible tells the thief not to just merely stop stealing. What does the Bible tell the thief to do? Be generous. See, the opposite of sin, of, of stealing, is not stop stealing. It's be generous to the people around you. 
The sin of faithfulness, faithlessness, I should say, the opposite is not merely, well, you know, I'm going to stop making promises I can't keep. I'm not very faithful, so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stop making promises. That you haven't followed Christ in that regard. The opposite of faithlessness is faithfulness, keeping your promises even when it costs you something. The opposite of being a liar is not just simply to stop talking. The opposite of lying is to encourage, to tell the truth, and to do so in a way that encourages and builds others up. Maybe you've heard this phrase before, probably from your mom. If you can't say something nice, finish it. Yeah, it's a heresy. What's the Bible say? If you can't say something nice, what are you talking about? Say something nice. I mean, this isn't complicated. You're a Christian. Do Jesus-y things with your words. Say something nice. I don't know that I see anything nice in that person. The problem then is not that person. It's your eyes. And it is quite evident then you need some of you removed and some Jesus revealed. We're going to talk about these in more detail in the coming months, but what about anger? More serving others, less serving self. Anger just serves me. It says, life is not fair. I get to blow my top about it. And my anger will be subsided when you finally figure out that I'm right. I don't know what to do about the guy driving in front of you. He will never figure it out. I don't know about the people in the left lane on the freeway. In Medford, apparently, there's a rule somewhere that says, get on the freeway, get in the left lane, go 45 miles an hour. I actually think it's the Holy Spirit doing that to sanctify me. I'm just, I'm ready to pull the 45, you don't even, shouldn't even be on the freeway. You shouldn't have a car. Okay. In anger, we say, you know what, we'll just get over it. I'll just let it go. Let bygones be bygones. And the Bible says, no, no, no. When we get to it, we'll look at what Jesus says. Go and be reconciled and serve them with peacefulness. Not when they figured out that they've wronged you, but when you figure out you can serve them even though they're wrong. Be reconciled with those who have harmed you. When it comes to sexual relationships, he is going to say, listen, you think you are so, such a holy roller because you've managed to not sleep with a bunch of people. Or you've slept with fewer than your buddy. And he says, no, 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 you don't understand. You want to serve others and not see them as objects of desire, but instead see them as those devoted to Christ. Those who are esteemed as in Christ. To love them heart, mind, body, and soul as brothers and sisters in Christ. So many of us have decided we're hot stuff because we managed to not sleep with people. And yet, when we scurry down to church, we hope we just run into that one person. Oh, we won't do it on purpose. Just, you know, maybe got kind of quiet. And Jesus says, that's exactly what is going on in your heart. Will you, is this person here merely for your gratification, even a conversation? Or is this person one redeemed by Christ and not to be viewed as one in Christ made in the image of God? Serving others rather than serving my own fleshly desires. When it comes to marriage and divorce, he's, some would say, well, we got divorced, but we divorced amicably. We worked it out peacefully. 
And Jesus would say, well, what does it look like to live in covenant even when it's difficult? He's going to call us to make promises and keep our promises, and most importantly, keep the promises that cost something. He's going to call us to serve others and not ourselves by not seeking revenge when we are wronged. But be willing to be wronged. When somebody slaps you in the face, what's he going to say? You got another side. When somebody steals your coat, what are you supposed to do? Offer him your shoes. If somebody forces you to carry their stuff one mile, at the end of the mile, say, you know what? Still got a little pep in me. Let's get her done. Where are we going? And we say, wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. That sounds like being taken advantage of. Doesn't it? And then we look up at the cross. And we go, oh, okay. Okay, I, I see now. What it, what it looks like to serve others, it looks like a cross. When it comes to money, he's going to call us not to just be a frugal steward He is going to call us to account as though our wealth is somewhere else. He's going to say, don't be anxious about anything because there is another place set up just for you and you've got nothing to worry about. We'll close with this. We call this the unpopular opinion segment. Who's heard of Dave Ramsey? Now, you're not sure if you should We love Dave Ramsey, I guess. You know, he's good. So I'm say this. I'm all in for Dave Ramsey. So what I'm about to say, don't throw out your Dave Ramsey stuff. Yeah, you're, now you're listening. Look, everybody's awake now. What? Here's one of his phrases, Dave Ramsey's phrase. You ready? Live like no one else so that one day you can live like no one else. You, who's heard them say this? And the idea is, is live really inexpensively and cheaply now and pay your debt, save your money, and you can retire like no one else. And I say, you know what? He's absolutely right on. He just missed it by about 20 to 30 years. Really? Live like no one else so we can retire nice? I don't think so. Retirement goes quicker than the rest, from what I understand. Who, who agrees with me on that one? So we're going to live our whole life for 20 years. It's going to go by in about a week and a half. And how many people do you know that lived like no one else, so one day they could live like no one else, and then they retired, and what happened? They punched out. Really? We're going to do all of that for those few minutes. I think he's right on. Live like no one else so that one day, and that day is the day after your funeral, you can live like no one else. That's what he calls us to do is to not be short-sighted. Good retirement is an excellent thing. Just fund it after your funeral. And then we don't have to be anxious about anything. More Jesus, less world. See, for Americans, this kind of thinking rattles us. Now, wait a minute. We can't be silly. And I'm not telling you to be silly. I'm just reminding you that Jesus said, take up a cross and die. More Jesus, less world. More shining, less hiding. Why are we so worried to tell our neighbor about the way to get to heaven? Why does that freak us out so much? It freaks all of us out. It's all of us. More shining, less hiding. Finally, more serving others, less serving ourselves. Join me as we pray.